Let us pray. God of us all, take our ears and hear through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire. For Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. So this week, I uh, found out that I am eligible to get the COVID vaccine. So tomorrow night, 5.15, I have an appointment at the Oregon Convention Center. And I know that some of you have had some of your shots. Some of you, in fact, have had all of your shots. You've worked your way all the way through the protocol. And pretty soon, all of us will be eligible to get the vaccine. And so things are going to change again soon. Things changed a year ago, didn't they? Even the service a year ago, we were struggling to figure out how to celebrate Easter in, in the two dimensions of Zoom and Facebook. We were struggling to figure out how to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus while we ourselves were disembodied. And here we are again a year later. But next year, next year, I am looking forward to an early morning service up on Mount Tabor. I'm looking forward to being able to come and uh, flower the cross together here in our sanctuary. Looking forward to the MYF making a delicious breakfast for all of us. And I'm sure we're all looking forward to Easter dinners with as many family and as many friends as we can cram around the table in our dining rooms. Things are going to change pretty soon. uh, We're going to be able to go to Timbers games. We're going to be able to go to Blazers games, to baseball games. We're going to be able to go to movies, to concerts, to restaurants. We're going to be able to make travel plans. Uh, All the Canadians in our congregation can finally go north of the border to see their families again. Things are going to change. But I do wonder sometimes how how much change, because we can be pretty resistant to change. As humans, we've evolved to be risk averse. We're we're kind of inertial beings. A body at rest stays at rest. And so there are some things that pretty stubbornly stay the same. So I wonder, I wonder how much I will change. I wonder how much we will change uh, personally. You know, at the start of this year, when COVID set in, we all started to bake bread. I think that's a change that's already faded. And I know that I'm eagerly awaiting for the bakery in our neighborhood for Fleur de Lis to finally open up again. They've had to postpone their opening, but I hear April 7th, next Wednesday, and I'll be at the door because I'm ready for them to bake bread instead. Uh, Or driving. You know, I think we discovered at the beginning of this pandemic that we don't need to drive nearly as much as we have been driving. I got, and I'm sure many of you got, rebates from your auto insurance companies. But uh, already traffic is returning, isn't it? I rode my bike into the church office, my church office here uh, this week. And as I passed in the morning, I could see the rush hour traffic on inbound 84. So I wonder how much we will change personally. I also wonder how much we will change as a culture and as a country. Um, The political polarization in this country is pretty persistent. Homelessness is is increasing. There's been this surge of anti-Asian violence that's grounded in centuries of um, Asian uh, prejudice. And mass shootings have returned. That was a happy change of this coronavirus. While we were socially distanced in our home, they had stopped. But now they've returned in Atlanta and then in Boulder. And last week it was Southern California. And yesterday there was another shooting. And what's, what's so discouraging, what's so disheartening is that after the, uh, the shooting in Boulder, after 10 people were killed there, the majority leader of the Colorado State Senate said this, and he was just being bluntly honest. He said, we have had a horrific year as a country, as a world. It has finally started to feel like things are getting back to normal. And I think, unfortunately, we are reminded that includes mass shootings. 
In this country, mass shootings are normal. So I wonder how much things are going to change. I wonder when things are going to change. I sometimes wonder if things ever really will change. And I wonder if those women on the way to the tomb early that morning were asking the same question. Will things ever really change? They'd known Jesus. They'd followed Jesus. They had trusted Jesus. They had loved Jesus. They had seen him tenderly embrace children. They had seen him heal deeply troubled people. They had heard him tell very wise stories and feed crowds of very hungry people. And on the day that we now call Palm Sunday, perhaps they were part of that crowd that was shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. In Hebrew, Hosanna is a word that translates, save us, we pray. They had hoped that Jesus would be the one to save them, the one to liberate them, the one to free them. They had hoped that Jesus would make good on the vision he had, not just of a new kingdom, although they would have been glad to be done with Pilate and be done with Herod and be done with all the others. They hoped that Jesus would come good on his vision of a new kind of kingdom. It was the kind of kingdom that Mary had sung about when she had borne Jesus in her body, a kingdom in which the lowly are lifted up and the hungry are filled with good things. Perhaps they had been on the Mount of Olives that morning shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. But when Jesus entered Jerusalem, that vision of God's future ran hard into the reality of the present. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, he ran hard into the Romans who ruled that part of the world back then. And the thing is, the Romans, they didn't really care that much about religion. You could believe pretty much whatever you wanted. It didn't matter to them. But the one thing that the Romans wouldn't tolerate, the one thing that they had zero tolerance for was anyone disturbing Sorry, I think I got muted there. That seems like that could be an Easter sermon in itself. But when Jesus entered Jerusalem, he ran into the Romans. And the one thing they wouldn't tolerate was anyone disturbing the peace. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, he also ran into the religious leaders of the day. And they had negotiated a kind of um, a tenable status quo with the empire. It wasn't everything they wanted, but it was enough. And now Jesus was threatening to unsettle it all. And so in the story that we tell on the day we now call Good Friday, the powers that be, the religious powers, the political powers conspired to kill him, to kill the dream, to kill the hope, to kill the future that Jesus had promised, to kill the one who embodied the perfect love of God. And so I wonder if those women that morning were asking themselves the same question. Will things ever really change? But that's the way Luke starts this story, right? But in spite of whatever else has happened before, but they found the stone rolled away. And they might have guessed that the body had been taken. They might have guessed that it had been taken to keep that tomb from becoming a pilgrimage site for a martyr. They might have guessed that, except for the two men in dazzling clothes who said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. And they went to tell the others who didn't believe him, because why would they? Peter runs on to look for himself. 
he is, Luke tells us, amazed at what had happened. Although I suspect if you asked Peter to describe what had happened, he wouldn't have been able to say. Jesus, who embodied the love of God, the kingdom of God, the dream of God, Jesus had been killed. And if the story had ended there, and that's the way all the other stories of all the other guys, all the other would-be saviors, all the other would-be deliverers had ended. If it had ended there, well, nothing would have changed, right? They would have had some good stories to tell. They would have remembered those moments when everything seemed possible. But nothing would have changed. But on the first day of the week, God raised Christ from the dead, and that changed everything. All of it, the dreams, the hopes, all of it was coming true. The resurrection of Jesus holds the promise that the world has changed, that life has changed, that the future has changed, all changed, changed utterly. That's the gospel. That's the great good news. That's the ground of our faith, the ground of our hope. Christ has risen. He has risen indeed. Alleluia, alleluia. But I still wonder, in the wake of Easter, will we change? In the world after resurrection, in the world that God is setting right, the world that God is making whole, will we be part of God's new creation? Will we be part of the beloved community that Jesus promised will come on earth as in heaven? Will we change? Will I change? So I've been thinking about what causes change, about how people change, about why any of us ever change. And it turns out there's actually an equation for change. It was developed by some economists for use in the business world, but I found it's a helpful way to think about any kind of change. And sometimes it's called the, uh, the Beckard-Harris formula for change. Now, let me just say parenthetically, if you never liked math in school, if you never did well with math in school, don't worry, it's not that kind of formula. No exponents, no trig functions at all. The formula looks like this. Can you, can you put it up, Rachel? It looks like this. Uh, C equals D times V times FS greater than R. And it's really not that hard to understand. C stands for, for change, right? Change, let's see, can you go to the next slide there? Yeah, change, C stands for change. And change happens or change equals D which is dissatisfaction. If you're not dissatisfied, then why would you change anything, right? So C happens, change happens when D combines with or is multiplied by V, which is vision. You have to be able to see something different. D times V times FS, which is first steps. So dissatisfaction times vision times first steps, those things combine to equal change if, but only if, all of that is greater than R, which is resistant because we are naturally resistant to change. We are risk averse. Most of us, most of the time are more motivated by avoiding loss than by seeking gain. And that's why change is hard. And even in Luke, it's hard for the disciples, right? They are, they're pretty resistant to change. Even in the story we heard today, I mean, they know the way the world has always worked, hard for them to see any other possibilities. So when the women tell them what they've seen, tell them what they've heard, they don't believe it. They think it's an idle tale. So I want you to take a moment and, and, and think for just a, a, a moment here about what causes you to resist change, to resist change 
in your life, in the way that you live your life, to resist change in, in opinions or habits? Or maybe another way to ask the question is, what changes do you find yourself resisting right now? I mean, for some of us, life is pretty comfortable. So if we like it the way it is, just fine. Why, why would we want to change anything? Resistance is a pretty natural reaction. All right. C equals D times V times FS greater than R. So you can take that down now if you want, Rachel. Change only happens when dissatisfaction multiplies with vision and first steps. And that all has to be greater than, than our sort of innate resistance. So I want to talk about those three things for, for just a moment here. Dissatisfaction. Now, on the one hand, that's not hard, right? There's, there's plenty to be dissatisfied with. Um, life is rarely exactly the way I want it to be. Um, truth be told, I'm rarely exactly the way that I want to be. So I don't have to look hard. I don't have to think long to see my own faults, to see my own failings. Um, I can pretty readily uh, remember things that I regret. I can remember times that I've embarrassed myself. Uh, one of those happened just this week, in fact. And if we look at the news, well, there's plenty wrong in the world, too, isn't there? Although what's wrong depends on which news you're watching. So on the one hand, it's not hard for us to be dissatisfied. On the other, it's often easy enough for us to be satisfied just enough. I mean, personally, we have a capacity to justify, to explain a way, to live with a lot that's not right. We'll just, we'll just carry on as is, right? In our public life, our life as a community, our life as a country, it's easy, as for, it's easy for us to look away. It's easy for us not to see what we don't want to see. It's easy for us to be satisfied enough. In the Gospels, though, in the stories that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell about Jesus, it's, it's as if Jesus is holding up a mirror, a mirror for us to see ourselves clearly. And so in the stories of the life of Jesus, we can see who we can be, who we are created to be, right? In those stories, Jesus calls us to lives that are truthful and gracious and generous and compassionate. Jesus shows us that the capacity in us as, as people created in the image of God. Jesus shows us the capacity that we have to love each other in the way that God has loved us all to love our neighbors, to love even our enemies. Arrhenius, who was one of the early church leaders, put it this way. He said, because of his boundless love, Jesus became what we are, that he might make us to be what he is. So in the life of Jesus, we see who we can be. But the stories of the death of Jesus are also like a mirror. And in it, we see a pretty brutally honest picture of who we are. Jesus embodied the love of God and humans killed it. Greed, fear, power, pride, privilege, all of that conspired to kill Jesus. And we have all of that in us still. And so his death stands as a judgment still on our capacity for sin. We have that in us. And if we can look at all the ways that we continue to crucify people in our wars, in our prison systems, at our borders, if we can look at all the ways that we continue to kill love, today's April 4th. It was 53 years ago that Martin Luther King was assassinated. 
Shots rang out in a Memphis sky. And just this week, the trial of the officer who put his knee on the neck of George Floyd for eight minutes and 46 seconds. If we can look at all the ways that we continue to kill love and not be dissatisfied, then nothing is going to change in us, among us, or through us. Sister Ruth Fox, who's a Benedictine nun, wrote, wrote a blessing for dissatisfaction, and it includes, includes these lines. May God bless you with a restless discomfort about easy answers, half-truths, and superficial relationships so that you may seek truth boldly and love deeply within your heart. May God bless you with the gift of tears to shed with those who suffer from pain, rejection, and starvation so that you may reach out your hand to comfort them. May God bless you with holy anger at injustice, oppression, and exploitation so that you may tirelessly work for justice, for freedom, and for peace among all people. Change, the kind of change that resurrection makes possible requires that kind of holy dissatisfaction. And it requires vision. It requires seeing what's possible, seeing what's ahead, seeing what can be, seeing what will be different. We are resistant to change. The thing is, we don't fear change so much as we fear loss. We fear what we might lose with change, what might be asked of us, what might be taken from us. But it's also true in my experience that we are willing to give things up. We're willing to let things go if we know what that change will bring. I mean, parents do this all the time, right? Parents make sacrifices all the time because they can see what's possible for their kids. Change requires vision of what's possible. And again, that's what the scriptures do. They help us to see the kind of world that God means for us to live in. It's the kind of world in which every person is seen as innately valuable because every person has been created in the image of God. It's a world in which everyone is treated with equity. It's the world that the prophet Amos could see, right? A world in which justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. It's a world in which everyone has what they need to thrive. It's the world that the prophet Micah could see. A world in which everyone sits under their own vine and under their own fig trees and no one shall make them afraid again. It's the kind of world that Jesus helps us see. It's the kind of world that Jesus taught us to pray for. A world in which God's will is done on earth as in heaven. A world in which we give thanks for our daily bread, bread given for all of us, so that no one is left out, no one is left hungry, no one is left alone. It's the kind of world where we ask for forgiveness even as we forgive others. That's the beloved community. That's the kind of life together that the resurrection of Jesus makes possible. That's the vision. That's the dream. Change requires dissatisfaction. It requires vision. And it requires first steps, knowing how to get started. Otherwise, we just stay stuck. So how do we start believing in the dream? How do we start believing in Jesus? How do we start believing that the love of God is powerful enough to make the world whole, to make us whole? Well, it turns out it doesn't take much. Jesus says all it takes is faith the size of a mustard seed. It reminds me of the way that David James Duncan described his own experience of being 
in faith, as he put it. David James Duncan's terrific uh, novelist, terrific writer that lives here in the Pacific Northwest. And one of his essays in a book titled God Laughs and Prays, he describes his own experience this way. What enfaithed me was hollowing out after years of effort, years of resistance. What enfaithed me was hollowing out after years of effort, a little place in my heart about the size of a thimble. Then when I was 20 in India one day, I turned to my best notion of God with embarrassed but complete sincerity and said, would you care to fill this little thimble with anything? And instantaneously, almost inanely, really, an undeniable, unimaginable, indescribable lake of peace and love landed on my head in reply. He hollowed out a place the size of a thimble. That was his experience. Everyone's experience is unique. Everyone's experience is as unique as you are. But even if it's just the size of a thimble, even if it's the size of a mustard seed, Even if it's only big enough for a single drop, that drop comes from the lake. It comes from the sea. It comes from the vast ocean of God's love, of God's peace, of God's spirit. That's the first step. Hollow out whatever place you can in your heart, in your soul, in your mind, and let God fill it with love. Because once we know that God loves us, then we can start to see the next steps. Once we know that God loves us, it's a lot easier to see how we can love others, how we can care together for each other, how we can forgive each other, how we can serve each other, how we can stand in solidarity with each other. And then we just keep looking for the next step and the next step and the next step. And that's how change happens. Holy dissatisfaction, a vision of the beloved community, and step after step after step after step as we together strive to follow the way of Jesus. That's how change happens in us and among us and through us. See, the thing is, we don't have to change the whole world. God has done that. God is doing that, and God will do that question is, will you let God change you? Will we let God change us? Maybe so. Amen.